have a seat. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to go and be a part of what we have happening in our Vine Kids ministry. Miss Jody standing right down here. She would love to take them uh, back with her this morning. So we're going to be taking a little bit, uh, we've been on a little bit of break. We're still kind of taking a little bit of break. I've, I told you over a year ago when we first started our big kind of movement of the book of Acts that it was going to be broken up a little bit because Acts is 28 chapters and it would just take us forever. And we've been 52 weeks in and so we're intentionally taking little moments to break it up so we can explore and do other things that God, I think, is doing in the midst of our community. But that's going to kind of be our ongoing study and movement for some time. We are well over uh, almost two-thirds of the way through it, and so there's not that much left. Um, but we're going to be on a we've been on a little bit extended break. We're continuing that little bit of an extended detour. And we're going to take full advantage over the next three weeks of, of really exploring this movement that God has kind of begun as we move space and begin to think differently about what it means to grow and disciple and become a church and a people that say, Jesus, you get all of us. And we've talked about at length over the past months about what it would mean for us to go all in and really submit and surrender our hearts to God. But as I was thinking through, uh, getting ready to kind of, when are we going to start Acts again? I, I really want to take an intentional moment before we dive back into that study and, and kind of look at what it would, what the scriptures say about lives that go, Jesus, you get all of me. And I, I hammer this a lot because it's truly one of the areas of my own life that the Holy Spirit continues to bring up, which is I surrender just enough of myself to feel comfortable with how I live. But I wrestle with giving over all of myself. What we're going to see in James 4 as we explore over the next few weeks is that the call of the Christ follower, the call of the church is to submit 100% in heart, mind, and soul to God. What would it look like if I let go of myself and let go of my pride and let go of my fears and said, God, you get all of me? What would that look like as a church? What would it look like for us? What would it look like for our marriages, for our families, in our workplaces, in our city? What would it look like if we actually began to believe James 4, 7 and said, submit ourselves, therefore, wholly unto God? And so we're going to be looking at some very personal things over the next few weeks that I think James calls us to let go of. And the first one we're going to be exploring uh, is the idea of letting go of myself, right? The greatest call in, of, of the gospel, the greatest call of, of all of Scripture is death to ourselves. It is the single greatest call of the follower of Christ, that I have to die to myself and submit completely to Jesus Christ, that he becomes my life, right? That I no longer lives, as Paul, sa live, as Paul says, but God lives in me. Jesus dwells in me. Death to self is one of the single greatest calls in all of Scripture, and it's one that we struggle completely with. And what we're going to look at today as we open up James 4 and begin the first part of this little movement is, what would it look like if I truly let go of me? If I begin to realize that a lot of the problems in my life aren't to be blamed on somebody else, on my marriage, on my workplace, on my boss, on my lack of money, on my, you know, whatever it is, if they were actually really a battle that was going on with inside of my heart inside of myself, that I was the root of a lot of my own struggles and problems. Um, we're going to look at what it might be to actually let go of ourselves and say, God, I realize that maybe, just maybe, the things that are going on in my heart are causing the struggles and stresses in my life. And there isn't something else to blame, but there is a spiritual battle that is at war in my soul 
and I am giving into it every day. And James is going to kind of lead us through a, a process. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open up to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the first four verses this week, the next four, and then we're going to wrap it up in three weeks. And we're going to begin by exploring what would it look like if I truly let go of myself. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we will uh, dive into this together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. Lord, that you tell us that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, God. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we take that very seriously. Lord, as a church, we take your word seriously. This is not some promise book or guidebook by which you kind of give advice to our lives. This is the whole of redemptive history poured out as a love letter, as your expression of saving love. And God, it calls us to some very challenging things. It calls us to some deep questions. It calls us to do things like come and die. But God, the kind of call of a follower of Jesus is to deal with your word and surrender and submit our hearts and our lives to it and ultimately to you because an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so Lord, as we open James 4, just penetrate our hearts. Whatever you need to speak to us today individually, uh, meet us right where we are. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit there, and just ask God to meet you this morning, to teach you, that his words would speak to your heart. Just, just kind of whisper that in your own um, heart right where you sit there, that your words would speak to my heart. Take a moment and pray for someone else. Be in the habit of praying for other people, even if you've never seen them before, even if this is your first time here, just just pray for someone. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we pray that you would, you would move in us this morning. You would teach us. We relinquish control and we give it to you. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, those of you that are familiar with James, uh, the book of James, will, will know that James, uh, most scholarship believes that, that James was written by Jesus' half-brother and a leader of the church in Jerusalem. So those of you who have been with us as we've studied Acts, James' name has come up several times as Paul returns from missionary journeys and he spends time with the leaders in Jerusalem. James is at work and he's leading that movement. Most believe that James is one of the first real books or letters written in the New Testament, and it was written to a different group of people. A lot of the letters that Paul wrote were for specific churches, right? He wrote to the Galatians, the church in Corinth or wherever, and he'd write to specific people. But James's letter was actually written to Jewish Christians that had been scattered all over the region. And if you remember way back in Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip was the first martyr, right? He was a follower of Christ, and he was stoned to death and killed for his faith in Jesus. We explored that, oh, I don't know, probably in the summer sometime. And what we learned in that was that on that day that um, Philip was killed, a great persecution broke out in the church, and the church was scattered, meaning that they carried off and put into exile a lot of the church leaders. And the, the Romans thought that if they did this, they would decentralize Christianity and it would ultimately just go away. 
because it didn't die with the death of its leader. Like a lot of religious movements die with the death of its leader. But Jesus didn't die. He was raised from the dead, and it was causing all kinds of problems. And the actual movement of Christians was growing, and it was gaining momentum. And so they thought, we'll kind of decentralize it. And a great persecution broke out, and they scattered the leaders all over. And James's letter, if you read James 1, was written to the scattered Jewish Christians, right? So he's written, writing to a very specific but very spread out group of people. So those of you that had grown up, grown up in a Jewish household, right, but had surrendered your life to Christ, you are a follower of Christ, and you have been taken from your homeland, Jerusalem, and scattered all over the nation, right? And this was a really lonely people group because not only were you away from your own people and your own homeland, you're out of Jerusalem and scattered all over the area, but you were a very isolated person because as someone that has walked away from what most Jewish people would say is your complete faith, your family wouldn't have anything to do with you, you were ostracized from the community, and you were basically left out there. And it was a very challenging and difficult place to be. And so oftentimes in these communities, the Jewish Christians would gather together. And we saw in the book of Acts that they would, they would bicker and they would fight and they would kind of argue with the Gentile Christians, and it's just a sort of a picture of the New Testament. And James is writing to these scattered Jewish Christians, and they're having some issues. Like a lot of New Testament letters, they're, it's addressing a pretty sp- significant and personal problem. And what we're going to see in James 4 is that James is moving beyond these sort of sweeping generalities of a don't do this and try and do this and live like this to addressing some very personal and very specific things that are happening within the context of these groups or gatherings of Jewish believers. And what we're going to see is that it began with the fighting and quarreling, the arguing and the bickering and the struggles that were going on in the context of these Christian circles. And I want you to keep that in mind because these are not just big sort of kind of sweeping movements of saying, hey, quit fighting, quit arguing. These are are gathered small groups of believers that are destroying themselves, that are fighting and bickering. And James is going to call into question what the source of their problem is. So let's take a look at those first four verses together of chapter 4. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now these are very pointed and very personal and very specific words that James is writing not to kind of uh, pagan or just primarily Jewish leadership. He's writing to Jewish believers, followers of Christ, people that he most likely knew that had been scattered from Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that there is a problem in front of you. And he says, there is bickering and there is quarreling and there is fighting and it is going on among you. Now, a lot of us think that the New Testament church um, was perfect. In fact, I've heard and read more and multiple blogs and multiple sermons preached that if the church could just return to the first century church, if we could just focus ourselves and return to Acts 2 and share and have things in common and pool our resources and share food, then we would be the perfect church and we quit doing all the things that the church is fighting about and doing today. 
right? Hear that all the time. But the truth is, if you really read Scripture, the New Testament church fought just like our modern church. And a lot of the letters were written to combat heresies. If you read Corinthians, basically Paul says, listen, you have so split yourself into three camps that you won't even talk to each other, right? A lot of our denominations and life as church believers or, or Christians today and, and believers are built into these same things. So just to return to what happened 2,000 years ago doesn't fix anything because the problem, as we're going to see, is not the century we're in, not the millennium we're in, but it's a condition and a brokenness in our own heart. And James says, look, you've got a problem, and you're fighting, and you are quarreling among yourselves, and do you want to know why that is? Now, a lot of us, this is sort of our dislike for the church, right? We have a, a disenchanted view of the church because if you've been around it long enough, you've probably peered behind the curtain, right? You've seen the issues that take place, and it's not everybody just holding hand and splitting donuts. It is infighting about curtain colors and who does this and why these chairs are that or why we kept brick walls and who didn't give that much money and why would they give that and they should be doing this and they said they'd make the coffee decaf and it wasn't decaf and I got really excited and I never had caffeine and so they're off the hospitality team or whatever. Like if that is the curtain and then you're like, I'm not going there anymore. They're too big. They're too small. Whatever. I mean, and so we see behind the curtain, right? And we go, well, I, I don't love that. Most of us have our issues because the bickering and the quarreling and the fighting and the struggles that happen within the context of the church. The, some of the most um, damaging and painful and hurtful things I've ever seen in my life have come within the metaphorical walls of the church. Right? Not necessarily in this space, but within the metaphorical walls. Relationships, gossip, and slander, and hatred right, have come within the context of the church. And it's why a lot of us have become disenchanted with it. Hey, we're fine with Jesus. We're great with Jesus. But it's just those Christians that are, they just make me crazy. And I can't stand them because they're judgmental and they're hypocritical. Christians stand around going, what? You know, but the truth is people are right. They're not wrong. And James is addressing it. And he says this. He says, listen, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? Now, it's actually, it looks like he's asking a question. Like, hey, listen, what is causing it? Like, tell me. Like, he's saying, hey, Brother Bob, all right, why are y'all fighting? And it's almost as if we're waiting for Brother Bob to go, well, it's actually a great thing you ask. Because you remember that thing I did mention about the coffee? James has been coming up here, and he's making the decaf in the other pot. And it makes the baby Jesus cry. I'd been telling him that, right? I mean, it's almost as if they're waiting to start blaming each other. But James doesn't really give them a chance, right? It's more of a rhetorical question. He says, what causes the fights and the quarrels among you? And then he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. And so you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. Now, I want you to pay really close attention to what James is saying, because he's saying something very specific here. He actually says, so what's causing the fights and quarrels and struggles within the context of your Christian community, right? These small groups, which are much smaller than what we're gathering here today. What's causing those fights, right? Isn't it what's actually going on inside of you? Now, I've spent a lot of my life over the past 20 years of doing ministry listening and counseling with people. 
I've sat down countless hours with husbands and wives. I've listened to husbands tell me that the problem in their marriage is their wife won't do this. I've heard wives tell me that the problem with their marriage is that their husband doesn't do this, these three things. I've listened to people come in and complain about their work and their boss, and if their boss just did this, then they'd be able to be happier if they could just have this. I have listened to countless hours. In fact, I've been one of those people that has given countless hours of rhetoric about why my life isn't this and why the source of my struggles or fights or issues are someone else. And it will be really easy there for, for James to say, what's the source of our fighting and problems? Let's find that person and let's deal with them. But what James says is actually something different. He says, don't you know that the source of your problems is actually something that's happening inside of you? And I'm telling you, if you really listen to this and you really pay attention to it for just a moment, it really is sort of world-changing. And James is going to explain it more in a minute. But the problem, right, the main problem, the main struggle is not the guy making decaf coffee, right? It's not your boss. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your church. It's not your oldest son. It's not your mom. It's you. Now, none of us want to hear that, right? Because on some level, sure, it is them, too. But really, there's something going on in our hearts that James is alluding to that begins with us. That the source of our struggles and our failures and our fears and our anxieties begin with me, right? He says, don't they come from the desires that battle with inside of you? So your fights and your quarrels and your struggles and your general dissatisfaction with life and your financial situation or your singleness or your married life or whatever it is or your job or your boss, are those really somebody else's fault? Or don't they come from desires that battle with inside of you? See, our struggles and our fights and our quarrels and our dissatisfaction are almost always able to be traced back to our own selfishness. That's what James says. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, and you cannot have what you want, and you quarrel and you fight. Now, if you really think about this for a moment, that most of our struggles, and you know, James isn't really talking here about material things. He's not saying that, you know, the guy in the church that you're hanging out with or whatever, he's got a nice cart and you want his cart. He's not really talking about that. He's talking about something much bigger, right? And although he's addressing these specific problems in the church, they can really kind of be applied to a lot of things in our lives, that our struggles and our affairs and our dissatisfactions are almost always traceable to our own selfishness. We get, we have a life where we, we don't get the things that we want. We have a life that we're generally dissatisfied with. Now, no one ever says this out loud to each other. Because as Christians, we've been trained, right, to say certain things and, and certain phrases to each other so that we don't give away our own sinfulness. It's just how we've been wired. We've been wired to use the right phrases around people, especially within the context of our church, so that we don't give away the real brokenness that's in our own lives. But most of our problems stem back to our own general deep selfishness. And it, like James says, we don't get what we want. I didn't get a raise. My husband won't give in to me about this. 
or he won't give me the attention, or my wife won't do this, or I've just been single for so long, or I can't move up and work, or I don't have enough money, or I'll never have enough money. And our own general satisfaction really boils down, honestly, as James says, to a lot of brokenness that happens within inside our own hearts. The desires that battle with inside of you. Now, I know they wage war in my heart, man. I have got desires that are absolutely at war in my heart. And the truth is, I know what God's side is. But I wage war against it constantly. Why? Because I am constantly fighting death to myself. I'm constantly trying to prop myself up before people and before the Lord to show that I have some kind of worth or value. And so the desires of my heart are constantly at war with the things of God. And what the result is, is selfishness. And the result is quarreling and fighting and dissatisfaction and looking at your life and being generally disenchanted because everybody else seems to have these things and seems to be going this way. And so what does James say you do when you give in and you live in that selfishness? You kill and you covet. Now, he's not talking literally about killing each other. The Christians that are scattered around meeting in groups, they're not literally killing each other. But we kill metaphorically with words. We kill each other with our glances, with our stares, with our lack of communication with our spouse, with our punishing them, with the lack of forgiving your mom for whatever she did 18 years ago, with your blaming your general dissatisfaction on your workplace and on your boss, with your gossip when you talk about people behind their back. We are killing people. Why? Because they did something? Maybe. But more so, it's the selfishness that rages inside of us. Because the real problem in your life is not someone else, it's you. It's the battle that is at war, waging war in your heart. Now, no one wants to hear this. No one wants to admit it. But if you think about it, you don't have to tell anybody. It's just true. And most of the reason we won't forgive people is because of something that's going on in our hearts and hurt and whatever it is. We're long since recognized that God has forgiven us for things that are a thousand times worse. And he tells us to forgive those people, yet we won't. We hold those grudges, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs unless you do it to me, right? But I expect something different out of you. See, we judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Hey, I meant well, but you've got to show it to me. You've got to do it. So we judge them by what they do, their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intention. And James is saying, look, there's something spiritual at play here. It's bigger than what you're letting on to. You kill and you covet. That word covet just means that you want something that's not yours. And we look at other people's lives all the time, right? And we can apply this materially. They have this house. They have this car. We can also apply it kind of emotionally. They have this marriage. You know, they have this, they have that, and their kids are perfect, and mine punch each other in the throat, and, you know, they post their pictures on Facebook, and my family looks nothing like that, and they're always at Disney World. Do they live there? Like, how do they, they ever come home? You know, and I look at, you know, my life, and it's just a dumpster fire, and you're just going, how come? And we covet, and we covet, and we look at each other's lives, and we just say, I want that, because we're generally dissatisfied, not with our things, we blame it on our things, but we're genuinely dissatisfied with our spiritual lives. And we're giving into the battle that's at war in our heart. Getting a different car 
It's not going to change anything, right? There's a war that's going on in your heart that James says, and it's battling within you, and it's your selfishness and your desires. Listen to what else he goes on to say. He says, you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motive. So he says, listen, you want to know what's really going on. And sort of the problem here is that you've got this battle that's rooted in selfishness. You blame the world for other things that are actually yours, right? You point the finger at everyone else except the war that is being waged in your heart. And you even know it. And you still blame everybody. And that's the source of your quarrels and fights is you, church and marriage and life and job and general dissatisfaction. But let me tell you why it still exists. It still exists because, first of all, you don't ask God, right? And second, when you do, you do it with all the wrong motives. Now, most of us would say, Trev, that's not true. I have asked God a thousand times. Well, usually God is, when we finally end up asking God, it's as the last resort. We've tried everything else. We're caught between that rock and the hard place. We have gone to everything else we've done. We are putting our arms up, and finally we just say, God, fix this thing. But what we're asking God is to fix the problem. But we've misidentified the problem. We're not asking God to fix our heart, usually. We're not asking God to give us victory over the things that are waging war in there. We're asking God to give us a raise or a job or a husband or a wife. But we're not saying, God... I am spiritually snapped in half, and I want a life that is just okay with you alone. So we go to God to fix it, and the fixing is in our wrong motives. God, just make everybody happy. Make us get along. Make this work. God, make the pieces of my life work together. Right? And James says, first of all, you don't go to the Lord. And then what you do, you go with all the wrong motives, which is God give me. The classic way to sit, figure this out is just to examine your own prayer life, right? God, give me this. God, do this for me. God, provide me with this. God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. I want, I want, I want, I want. I need, I need, I need, I need. Just God, fill this. Give me this. Do this. We can give ourselves away in our own prayer life with our motives. What we read in Scripture is that part of our call to prayer, number one, is just saying, God, where is your heart bent? God, where are you at work, and how do I join you? God, what if you never rectified this hurt in my life? Would I be okay with just you? Right? Paul has the same wrestle, 2 Corinthians. He talks about it. He says, there is this thing in my life, right, that I have begged you, God, to take away, and you haven't taken it away. And he said, but here's what I've resolved myself to, to saying, Maybe it's because you will be glorified in my weakness. So if that's the case, then leave it. Part of our prayer life is coming to a place where we say, God, I want what you want. And if that's for me to remain here, then I'll remain here. Because I want to know you more than I want relief from my struggles. So James says, you ask with the wrong motives. But here's, and I'll end, with, I'll end with this last couple thoughts. But here's the part to me that just tears my heart out that none of us really want to have to deal with, that is where James gets extremely personal. And he says this. Now keep in mind who he's talking to. Believers, talking to you, he's talking to me, people that have said, yes, I love Jesus. He says this in chapter 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. James didn't accidentally land on the word adulterous. 
It was not a, hey, that sounds good here. He chose it very intentionally. And he doesn't call the world, right, out there that have never given their lives to Jesus, adulterers. He basically says, listen, followers of Christ, people that have surrendered your heart and walked away from your families, who have given everything to say yes to Jesus, you are adulterers. You are adulterous people, and you want to know why? Because you have cheated on God with the world. You have chosen the things of the world over the things of God, and you have said, God, I have taken another lover, and I am letting that thing satisfy me or attempt to satisfy me. When you told me that you were mine and mine alone. And I tell you, as I read this, I thought, surely that's not what I've done, right? And James says, no, when you become a friend of the world, and we think of that as like really material, but really the world is just anything opposite of God's heartbeat, right? When I refuse to deal with my own fear and selfishness, my own complete lack of sort of um, contentment, and I blame the world, and I don't deal with my selfishness, I become a friend of the world. Because the world tells me that it's not my fault. Somebody else. That I become an adulterer. That as a follower of Christ, I've decided to cheat on the God that gave his life for me. And we're not talking about the Israelites wandering in the desert. We're talking about people like you and me that have said, Jesus, I love you truth is we're cheaters we're just flat out adulterers because god has said i am yours and yours alone and i will love you till death and back and we've said that's great let me explore around a little bit i'll just keep coming back to you when i need you and we cheat over here we fill ourselves here and we do this and we go over here and say give me this give me this and we circle back around to god when things get really complicated and god is standing there spiritually metaphorically having never left saying no i've just taken you and we just cheat and the reason this is so powerful to me is because i've known these things for years and it's not that i don't care it's that i don't know how to let go i don't know how to let go of myself my pride my selfishness my my own issues enough to lay them down and just die to me. And if we're really going to talk about what it means to be a group of people that follow Jesus together, a community, a church, or, or individuals, or as a husband and wife, that just say, Lord, we just want to follow you together. The first thing we have to understand is we've got to let go of ourselves. We've got to quit cheating on God with our selfishness, with the world. Because the very powerful picture he paints at the end is he says that when you become a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. An enemy of God. Now we knew this before we were believers. But our love affair with the world has put us at odds with God. And we expect God just to make everything work. Because we ask him nicely. The truth is God wants you. He's not interested in solving your problems on the outside. He knows the inside problem that you're wrestling with and dealing with is a spiritual problem brokenness, a divided heart that is waging war inside of you and that is where God wants to take up residence. So who's the master of that? And as we begin this journey and begin to walk through James over the next few weeks let's really deal with what it would look like to say, God I don't want to cheat on you anymore. 
I'm tired of living that way. And so I want to learn to let go of me completely so that I can say yes to you with all of me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you that it is true. And I thank you that times, well, for me personally, extremely challenging and painful. But it's beautiful. And it's been penned by you. And you love us. And God, you are the perfect father. And you have never left. And you have never abandoned us. And you have never walked away. And even though we have chosen to follow ourselves and our own desires and the world and our lack of contentment and our own dissatisfaction or whatever it is, and we have cheated on you and we have taken the world as our lover and we have tried to let it satisfy us where you tell us only you can satisfy. Even though we do that and even though we do it and know that we do it, you still love us and you still forgive us and you still draw us back into you. And you still call us your beloved. And God, we, I am so undeserving. I'm grateful, Lord, that in my broken failure of a life, you love me. And that you love each of us, that you've called into relationship with us. So Lord, teach us how to let go of ourselves. To drop the anger, disenchantment, lack of forgiveness, the frustration, the quarrels, the fights, the gossip, the slander, the words, the hatred, whatever it is, to just let it go. Realize that the root of the problem is most likely me and that you have been so gracious to forgive me, so gracious to love me. And that's how you call me to live and love people. God, give us a hatred for anything that is opposite of you. And God, let us take you, you alone, as the one that satisfies our soul. As we close our time in worship, Lord, teach us what it means to truly let go of myself. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. As we play, we're just going to sing something to start out with to... Uh...